Teachers are natural innovators, entertainers, and problem solvers. They dream of growing old into the profession, teaching their kids' kids. But sometimes career goals shift or change, and that makes opportunities outside of the classroom seem intangible. Questioning, who am I if I'm not a teacher? I'm your host, Alexandra Simon. And I'm your co-host, Jody Scissors. This is The Great Teacher Resignation. Today, our guest is Tiffany Udi. Tiffany is a non-attorney special education advocate and president of InBloom Advocacy. She also works on the sales team for Branching Minds, an ed tech company. Prior to this adventure, Tiffany was a school administrator, special education teacher coach, and special education teacher. She is a single mom of two boys and resides in North Carolina. Welcome to the show today, Tiffany. Hi, how are you today? We are doing great, and we're so looking forward to speaking with you today about your transition. Uh, We know that you went from teacher to non-attorney special education advocate. We want to know how you transitioned from one role to the other. How did you get there? Okay, so I started my career as a special education teacher and initially thought I wanted to climb the ropes in order to make a greater level of systems change within education. So I took the time to go back and get my master's and become a school administrator. Well, then I got to the point in my fourth year of being a school administrator that I realized I really did not have the power to make some of the system levels changes that I was hoping to make within our education system. So that is whenever I decided I needed to figure out what I could do to still make an impact on teachers and students, which is really the core of why I became an educator to begin with. And at the same time, I needed to figure out if I was going to be a really good educator or a really good mom. Because in the season of being a single mom, working 80 hours a week to be really good for my students was not always really good for my children. So I had to go into that. And within that, I had numerous challenges as a administrator that I kind of felt like I was getting red taped where I could not support and serve students in the way I know they needed for various reasons. And I also had situations where I had a ton of personal friends and family reaching out to me looking for advice on navigating the special education and 504 processes. And a lot of our parents come to meetings and just trust that what's happening in those meetings is what's best for their student. And in some situations, the teacher's been red taped and can't always do what she knows she wants to do. And so I got put into a situation of, okay, what am I going to do next? I know that being a principal isn't going to work for my family any longer. So I need to figure out what's next. And that's when I decided I want to become an advocate for these families and really figure out a way to better engage and bridge home and school for our kiddos, because it's going to be what helps our students in the long run. How did you go about becoming an advocate? So I went through starting to think about what that can look. Obviously, all the Google searches, all those. Knew of a couple advocates in my community. And a lot of those advocates, their goals and and their admirations was to like take down school districts. And I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. My goal was to get the services that are there for students and help families figure out how to make that happen. So I reached out to a couple friends and they said, well, just do your own thing. You can do it. You've got the education. I just didn't feel ready. 
So I started looking at advocacy trainings and I actually found COPA, which is the Council for Parents and Advocates and Attorneys, and decided to join that membership. And through our conversations discussion boards, found out that there is a course for advocacy. So I took that course and took the first course. Now there's numerous courses to follow, but took the first course. And honestly, I felt it was extremely easy for me as an educator. The course was more built for people outside of education. So I felt really confident at that point in my skills and in my knowledge base and collaborated with some local area nonprofits in my community. Honestly, there are our search options online where you can just search education nonprofits in your community and started reaching out to some of those leaders and asking for next steps on what I could do. And from there and from those coffee chats with other leaders in the community, I was able to start in Bloom Advocacy. I have a board of directors and everything that helps guide me in the work that I do. At the same time, I was terrified to leave education and not have a core salary and the unknown of of money right? Because I have two boys to provide for. So then I started thinking about what programs am I using right now that I would feel comfortable working for outside of the classroom? And that's whenever I decided to join the Branching Minds team. What is Branching Minds and what led you to that organization? I was a customer before. It's an MTSS solution software. And I knew that I had seen the impact it had made on teachers and students on streamlining that whole MTSS process in schools. And so I reached out to the founder because I knew her because I was a customer and said, hey, looking to make a change. Is this an option? Well, then she didn't respond. And I was like, okay, guess not. But I decided to start applying for positions. I've never been in sales. I've known I wanted to be an educator since I was two. So I decided to start just applying and see what happens. And their sales manager called me and actually said, oh, Maya told me about you. Great. Glad she didn't respond, right? But I told him, I said, I don't think I can sell. I don't think I can do it. I appreciate that. Maya believes in me. I appreciate that I know the platform and know all of that. But sales isn't really my thing. Can I do like some professional services? Because I feel like I could teach teachers how to use the platform better than I could sell it. Well, then he got me on a few calls and talked me into it. And so at the same time, he kind of guided me with the fact that my resume looked very teachery. And if I was going to continue in the world of exploring ed tech, I had to change my resume. And so that was a whole nother shift too, because I've never made a resume that wasn't for a teacher position. So he was like, no one cares about all your sub bullets on your resume where you tell all the things you do in your classroom. Like we know what teachers do for the gist, right? So change those into what they look like in the business world. And I had to get really creative in what that meant. And I did some coaching and some Google searches. Oddly enough, found some TikTok influencers that helped with resume building and just kind of also changed my resume through his advice. And then basically about four weeks later, he came back to me and said, I think you're ready are you really ready? And I was like, well, let's try it. Right. So I just started as an entry-level salesperson for the company simply because I believed in the product and my safety and security needed a salary. And so then that's where I built. Now I've moved up in the company and I'm able to have the flexibility to work from home, sell a product I really believe in, and also still provide my advocacy services for families 
and be there for IEP meetings and all of that, and then still be a mom. So that's kind of my story on where I got where I am now. I want to go back a little bit. You were having a call with the manager about sales, and he kind of convinced you to go for it. What was it about those conversations that made you actually believe like, I think I can do this? Well, he shared with me that right now in the ed tech world, a lot of people are only hiring educators. And they're doing that because all humans sell. So actually, when you think about it, even with my kids or my students, you're selling them the content or you're selling them that it's good for them to learn it or you're selling the idea of something. And on social media, there's all this influence right now. You're always selling a new idea or selling a product or this or that. So everyone has a sales bone in them, even if we don't use it all the time. And so that kind of intrigued me. And he said, start thinking about how many times you have to bribe or convince and negotiate with your kids or your students in order to get them to an end result. You're you're selling something to them. So that kind of started triggering my mind. And I was like, okay, maybe. And then he told me specifically that so many ed tech companies want educators that have used their product that can speak to it. Because a lot of times in the education world, trying to sell from a business person, our worlds don't mesh well. And so if I can speak to how I've specifically used the product as a principal with my teachers and the impact it made directly on students, then I can sell it right there just by giving my own testimony. So that's where I was like, well, what's the worst that can happen? You just hit the nail on the head. If I was a school district and I wanted to buy a product, buying it from a typical salesperson would not be as effective as buying it from a former educator who did have that experience using it with their school, with their students. I think that they're so right. And I think along with that, what are some other reasons why teachers might make a good fit in sales for an ed tech company? Are there other skills that they have that can make them great at sales besides having that hands-on experience with the tool perhaps? Yeah, even if it's not a product you've used, if it's a product you believe can make an impact on students, because all educators, that's where our heart is. And so if it's a product you believe can either make life easier for fellow teachers or impact students, then you can sell it because that's what we need right now in the education world. And also most educators are very creative. We're very organized typically. And so we have these traits that naturally help us be good salespeople because One thing, when you transition to working from home, you have to be organized. Otherwise, you will worry about the laundry and all the other things that are happening in your home. So um, you have to be an organized person. You have to think about the next step in the sales process, things of that nature. But then also you have to be creative. So doing the basic business email blast doesn't work in education. So when you're going to email out and search for outbound leads, you have to be creative enough to say the right words, have the right terminology, what's going to gain interest from another teacher, what's going to make them actually open that email, what's going to make them actually call you back whenever you leave a voicemail. So thinking like that, because we have that experience as educators, we know how to talk to each other in a break room. We can do that via phone and it can be a lot more authentic than the typical 1970s sleazy salesperson, right? Yeah, like it doesn't feel like a cold call to me, I would imagine, if you're getting a call from another teacher. I mean, that's how Jody and I met 
and clicked because we both said that we were former teachers and we're like, oh, we just felt this, this like immediate, like, this is going to be great. You know, like I could trust you in a way because you understand my language, you understand my experience. And so you can really understand the struggles of being an educator, the students' needs, things like that. Such really great advice for teachers who would consider a job in ed tech and specifically in sales. And if you think about all the resources or programs that teachers adopt, it's not usually from a salesperson. It's usually from a teacher recommendation or a PD that was led by another teacher. And so the history of teachers is trusting other teachers to make those recommendations. And it seems like you're bridging that gap for a larger organization when it comes to making partnerships with schools and other teachers. I wanted to take a minute to talk about this president hat that you wear. Uh, you you wear a lot of hats. Your mom, you, you work in sales. You've got all these teacher skills, but you wear this really important hat with Bloom Advocacy. And we know that lots of teachers advocate for different types of things, whether it's equity, access, resources, whatever it might be. How do you wear that hat? What do you do with that hat? And how are you doing wearing that hat as president? So... The president hat, I'm also the executive navigator. So right now I'm the only one doing the work of advocacy. My board of directors is just kind of guiding me on the business side, which I don't even like that side. So I'm glad they're there. But as president, I have to make sure, obviously, that I do get grants and things of that nature to be able to support low-income families, all of that. When I'm supporting a family, what that looks like is I do a huge file review. And that's very daunting because I'm looking at years and years and years of historical plans or supports, whatever that student's getting. And then I make recommendations based on experience, policy, law, things to that nature. I also attend IEP meetings with families. So many times our families are just sitting there nodding because they have no idea what the person in front of them is saying to them. Or I've had a lot of situations where the teacher will privately say to me, look, I know this is what the student really needs, but I'm being told no from people above me. Can you help? You know, and so I know I know board policies, I know state policies, I know federal policies. And so I make sure that I ask the right questions to get us to the right point. And it's not to file all these state complaints and everything. My whole goal at every meeting and every conversation I have with the school or with a parent is, where does this child need to go next to become a productive member of society? Because when education was founded, that was the whole point. And so for our students with disabilities or um, delays, we have to kind of help level the playing field. And so I may provide ideas for accommodations and modifications or just help ask the right questions that aren't always being asked at the table. Because so many times when we're problem solving for a student, We just want to fill out the paperwork right so we don't get in trouble by the county office or this or that, that we're not really thinking about what the paperwork means for the child. And so that's really what my whole work is that I do between meetings and observations and phone calls with principals. There's also a whole layer of just helping engage families in school that I also do. So I speak at conferences and different things to that nature because I really want to help district leaders see that there is a huge connection between home and school. And even for our disadvantaged families and our low-income families, if we can help connect them and bridge that gap and meet them where they are, we will see higher levels of student success. The research shows it. 
So it's helping districts and principals find the creative ways to make that happen, find the funding to make that happen, all of those pieces, but also building trust because a lot of cultures in the U.S. don't have the trust in our school system. And so helping families build the trust back in our school system and let them know that that is a safe place for them to be, that they are needed in the school, they are wanted in the school for their student to be the most successful student they can have. That's amazing. You said you wanted to be a teacher since you were two. So I assume that means you went through college, university on an education degree path. I did. Was your degree specifically in special education? So I started my education career actually in high school. We had a cadet teaching program where our high schoolers could go to the elementary school and teach. And I thought I wanted to be a math teacher, but they require you to do different subjects. So I did math at the elementary school. I actually did a stint in special education. It really intrigued me. And then at the same time, I got asked by a family to babysit and their child had autism. And I was terrified, but I wanted money. I was a teenager. I needed gas, right? So... I decided to try it and seeing the lens through Harrison, Harrison is my inspiration for everything now, seeing my lens through him is what kind of drove me into special education. And so then when I went to college, I was still majored at the time in math because, you know, I was young and thought that was what I was going to do and quickly realized after about three college math classes that I was not going to teach math. And so I changed gears to special education and finished out my undergrad in special education. And then taught for a few years, knew I wanted more, went and got my graduate degree in autism. The lens of autism is amazing. And then that's when I started going for my master's and all of that for administration, thinking if I could climb the ladder in my system, I can make the change. And then that's kind of when I started feeling that red tape of no matter how high I climb, our education system as a whole in America is built in a way that it's going to take more than a principal or one superintendent to make the change that I'm hoping in my lifetime I can make. I also want to touch on something that you mentioned, which is that when everybody who's supporting the family or the student, besides the parent themselves or the advocate in your case, is connected to that system, that red tape will continue to exist if there's not enough support within that system, which you've identified that there isn't. And I had to go through something similar with my own child. And I was fortunate that my sister's a school psychologist and she came with me to the meetings. They were able to be virtual. And having that external support is really important. Someone that doesn't have those connections, like their paycheck isn't coming from the school district that's not providing the service for your child. If you can connect with them, right? If you can gain their trust as an advocate, it's a much different relationship because I think a lot of times as a parent who had challenges navigating what support my child could receive at school, we're a little bit hesitant. If you say you can't help my child or you have limitations or you don't have enough teachers to do more interventions, well, who am I going to trust then? And I've been in situations where I do think the teachers wanted to do more and they were told no, because you know if they do more for this one child, then they need to do the same thing for the other 25 children that need those accommodations or those extras. And there's only so many hours in the day. So I think what I really heard from you is that having an advocate, if you're a parent going through any type of struggles with your child's education is really invaluable. And it's a a thought partner, having someone to bounce ideas off of, because unfortunately, sometimes the system 
may not be where you can get all of those resources. And so I imagine maybe you help them think outside of that system. So, okay, my child receives X in school, but like they also need this. So are there other resources that we can tap into? Are there programs outside of the schoolhouse? Are there grants? Are there funds to be able to get them that extra support to make them a productive member of society for when they finish their schooling? What I'm also hearing too is just your training and your background not only helps you teach and advocate for those students, but you're also supporting the family. And so I really applaud you just for having all of those skills and being able to not just inform those that need it, but those that need to understand it as well as just community members and people that work alongside with students in their classroom. Absolutely. And that happens. I have families that reach out to me and, you know, they really want the level of support that their neighbor gets. And then we get into those conversations because I'm not going to encourage a family to get the highest level of support that we can provide in our education system when their child is going to be successful with just a little bit of support. And there's so much support out there. A lot of times you they just think of Section 504 plans or IEPs, but Now in our education system, there is a large gamut of options for supporting each student in a very individualized way. And parents, honestly, just aren't aware of those. And sometimes teachers aren't allowed to advertise those. And so we have to have someone like me to be able to be the voice that knows both sides. Just the privacy piece of knowing, coaching someone through their privacy rights, I think is something to equip them with. There are so many layers to it. And every single family I work with, it's different. And what I have to look for is different. And the unique thing is families will ask me questions and I'll say, oh, well, that's going to be in the board policy somewhere. They don't know what I'm talking about. So I say, I will go look in the board policy and I'll email you directly what you're looking for. And just being that person that can understand both sides and can say to a family, This is what they're trying to tell you and they're not allowed to say. Let me give it to you in layman's terms and things like that or break down all the education jargon for families and all the alphabet soup that we use as educators. I do all of that work as well just to inform parents. I actually offer free parent seminars randomly via Facebook and different things that I just inform parents of what their basic rights as a guardian with a student in the education system is because that's really where my work is. I want parents to know they even have rights and they don't just have to nod their head in agreement at all times. Well, I really commend you for this work that you're doing with advocating for families and children on top of you know your full-time job working in sales in an ed tech company. And just to kind of close us out today, I want to ask you, in the beginning of today's episode, you shared how you weren't really able to balance your administrative role, and being a great mom. And just can you close us out today by telling us what your life looks like now? And do you have more of a balance? I do. I'm still figuring it out because I'm only a year out, but I have a lot more freedom. Everything that I do, I get to do from home unless I'm going to observe a student or an IEP. And I'm strategic when we schedule those to do those while my personal kids are in school or when I know I can have lean on family or friends for childcare. But most of my day, I kind of cram my used to be 80 hour day into eight to three when my kids are at school so that most days of the week I can be home and present. 
that's something I really wanted to be. It's not always on my phone, checking email, seeing who's going to be out the next day, all the things. So I have figured out that I can put my technology away once my students get off the bus. And if I do have an emergency, my kids are a lot more forgiving because it's not every day. And so if I just have to do a quick IEP meeting late in the afternoon or a quick call, they can say, okay, mom, because we know you're going to be back. We know you're not going to be gone till bedtime. My kids are young. They're still elementary age. So they know now that I'm present, I'm here, and I'm not always going to be on my phone. That's a biggest piece that changed me from being a full-time educator to really focusing on what it looks like to still be an educator, still making an impact for kids and teachers, but also making sure that I'm a mom. So that's probably been the biggest change is it's okay to put your phone down at night. I'm going to take your advice. (laughs) I actually have had a good boundary with the phone. It's just not checking on stuff. Like when something, you know, is not finalized, I struggle. I'm like, I got to check that just to see if it went through. But I hear you with the working remotely. I think it is easier to say, okay, I could be more present because it's easier when you're in a building, especially a school building, to get sucked in to staying later and later. There's always a need. And now you're in charge of the tasks for your role. And yes, they depend on probably other people on your team, but it's not quite the same, at least for me, as it was when I was in a school. And I see Jody nodding too. So, so Tiffany, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you today. We're so grateful for your time and for sharing your experience transitioning out of the classroom today with our audience. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to connect with Tiffany, you can find her on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok under her name, Tiffany Udi, E-U-D-Y. You can find it in the show notes. If you liked the great teacher resignation, give us a five-star rating and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. Today's episode was written and recorded by me, Alexandra Simon, and my co-host, Jody Scissors. Executive produced by Teacher Brain. Produced and edited by Emily Porter. Original music, Emoji by Tubebacker. Special thanks to our sponsor, Paper Planes Ed. <laughs>